Welcome, listeners, to Minisode 33 of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Aaron, and with me, as always, is my best friend, Patrick. Hey, guys. Today, we're covering a film that blew us away on our first viewings, but we've patiently waited for it to be released on Blu-ray so that more would have the chance to see it before we had this discussion. Your Name, directed by Japanese director Makoto Shinkai, is the story of a star-crossed boy and girl, perhaps destined to forever yearn for a meeting that will never come, connected across space and time by an unexplainable magic and framed against the backdrop of an impending supernatural disaster. With a theatrical run in 2016, it became the highest worldwide grossing anime film in history, beating out a small little movie you may have heard of called Spirited Away. That is no small feat, Patrick. And with that little bit of background laid out, let's get to it, shall we? Yeah, we shall. All right, buddy. So I have been singing this film's praises since the day that I first saw it back in April of 2017. The movie released in 2016, as I mentioned, but it was a such a small run that almost no one got to see it. It didn't, it didn't play na- nationwide for anyone to go see. I think it had a run in LA for a week or two just to qualify for awards that it wasn't nominated for, which is a travesty. So then this year, in the spring, it actually rolled out into theaters, and audiences had a chance to see it. And then just recently here, in November of 2017, the Blu-ray was released and is accessible so that more and more can discover the amazingness of this movie. I quickly told you that I wanted to cover this, and I wanted you to see it, and we finally got you a chance to watch it. And so... I want to hear about your reaction and I would love to know within your reaction of like what you think about this movie, what is your history with anime? Because I think that might have something to do and kind of frame your response around that. If you would. Well, my history with anime is very minimal. My first introduction to anime officially, besides just getting a, a run of, you know, little TV show, the bits and pieces here and there came about, I want to say maybe two or three years ago, a coworker of mine was talking about um, uh, this guy named Miyazaki. Uh, I don't know if people have heard of him putting out his last movie. And uh, if any of you guys know about Miyazaki, you know that he's kind of like the share of filmmaking and that he retires like multiple times only to come back and, and give us more great um, animated films. And, the the movie was called The Wind Rises, or The Wind Rises. It was his latest that had come out at that time. And working in in aviation, in the aviation industry, this was a movie that several of us as designers wanted to sit down and watch because it really showed off a lot of aerial stuff. And it got me talking to my coworker and saying, hey, who is this guy? I don't really know a lot about him. And she's like, okay, before you see this, I want to give you a primer. And so then Spirited Away was put in my hand. And I watched that. I watched The Wind Rises and then Howl's Moving Castle. Uh, I have not yet made my way through all of Miyazaki's collection yet. I think you and I watched uh, Kiki's Delivery Service when you we were in sure town. sure did, yes, sir. So I'm, I'm, I'm four in. I haven't actually sat down and watched. So this tells you kind of my mentality when it comes to anime. Even the stuff that I really enjoy, I don't make myself sit down and watch them. Because there's just something about it that's not like, wow. Uh, unlike maybe a coming of age movie or a documentary, things that I just gravitate towards naturally. And that's okay. 
So your name comes along and as my best friend, I trust your judgment in a lot of movies that you recommend to me and tell me to steer clear of. And you said, you've got to watch this. You've got to watch this. So I sat down and grabbed a copy of it when I could and finished it. And the only word that came to mind, ironically, was speechless. This was a movie that was beautifully filmed, whose story was intricately just fascinating and complicated. And I don't know really how to describe it, but I, I finished it and just kind of sat there for a few minutes. And then I clearly remember sending you a text saying five stars. (laughs) And I don't get that kind of reaction a lot. Seeing street obviously is one of those. And I know when a movie is five stars for me is when I have that reaction. When one, I'm just completely mesmerized by it. And two, when I want to immediately start it over. And your name has that instant replayability, rewatchability for a number of reasons that I know we'll get into. And honestly, it's an exception to the rule when it comes to my enjoyment of anime because I don't really have a natural gravitation towards loving it. Um, it doesn't make me want to watch more anime necessarily, but it does make me want to watch more Shinkai anime because I love his filmmaking just based off this one. I know there's one called, is it 500 meters per second? What Five is, centimeters per second. Right. There's some, there's some you know, metric system title or whatever. And I want to watch that next. I've heard it's like only 30 minutes so I can digest that. But um, I, I just, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Yeah. When you get a chance to see that one and then also potentially voices of a distant star, you'll notice there are, a lot of reoccurring themes with Shinkai's films, even going further back than those two. And I haven't, I haven't seen them all. I want to, um, very badly, but he, he deals with these same ideas of lovers being pulled across time and fate and distance and space. And, and his visuals are just always stunning. Like you've seen in your name. Um, both of those other ones have a lot of, uh, space voices of a distant star in particular has a lot of space in it space sequences that it's like just massively blown up version of what you see when the comet's in the sky in your name i should just it's gorgeous so he is definitely a unique director my my history with anime is that i don't know maybe a couple years ago i guess i finally started watching anime tv shows or series uh, i had never been into that i kind of always just turn my nose up like a lot of people do, but my kids and I started watching some together and we ended up just going through a whole bunch of different series. And we still sit down sometimes when we're just having dinner and want to throw on a couple episodes of something and we'll work our way through some anime. And I've just come to a place where I really enjoy it. I enjoy the way that the stories are told. I enjoy the overblown expressiveness of characters in Japanese animation probably because I'm a very emotional person myself. So I feel like I can relate to, to that. Everything is over the top and exaggerated. And, uh, yeah. So I also enjoyed Miyazaki's films. I've, I've seen a lot of them, if not all of them, most of them, but some of them, that style of anime and that, that kind of his like fantasy world, uh, is hit or miss for me. Sometimes it can work. Sometimes it can be just like, okay, just another thing. And the thing about your name is that it's grounded in this realism. It's real human beings. 
Um, and I, I say it's real, right? We're talking time travel and like all kinds of magic and crazy stuff going on. Right. But it's two human beings and it's a love story, but also so much more than that. Yeah, I um, agree with you. I think there's a, there's a sense of, of human connection, obviously, because our protagonists are like us. You know, Miyazaki, uh, one thing I remember walking away from Spirited Away was I could appreciate the fan- fantasticness of it, but it was kind of a turnoff because that's not my style. I don't necessarily like the, the over, the, the fan, fantasy world by, by default. That's why The Wind Rises was more of an appeal to me. And then Howl's Moving Castle was kind of a nice blend of both. You had these real people that had elements of, of fantasy with them, but your name was a great, it was, it was more than just, it wasn't a mix. It was really a, a, a thing of saying, here's humanity and we're going to attach some science to it to kind of tell this love story. Yeah. It's, it's, it's awesome. And, and it just, it reminded me of Christopher Nolan right off the bat. I, I continually make that comparison when I'm telling people about this and how the way in which he tells stories mixing in timelines and he really, he requires you to be engaged in a film and you have to do some work, right? As a viewer, you don't get to just sit there and casually follow along and get everything. There's so much detail. Um, there's a lot of nuance and there's, there's things you can pick up on in frequent viewings or, or repeat viewings. And that's the way that Shinkai's work is to me as well. And specifically in this movie, especially so. So, um, you mentioned earlier about being, you know, working in the, the industry and, and you do a lot of design work. Was there yeah. something about this one in particular that stuck out to you from that? Yeah. Especially watching it the second time. I think Shinkai does this thing that I like to call splitting the frame, uh, meaning the way in which he divides the canvas visually to force that sense of division and duality and in the way he plays with that and in, in how he contrasts that with moments of, of unison. Um, in, in my experience as, as a designer, good design uses the rule of thirds where the canvas is divided into three areas. So you have an area of dominance, you have an area of distant, and then you have a middle area. And you can see that in a lot of really good print design, in some web design, even depending on how a web page is laid out. It's usually... Uh, a lot of your good design is really using that rule of thirds. But the thing I like about Shinkai is that he divides the canvas evenly using things like Taki and uh, Mitsuo having their backs to each other. Uh, from the very beginning, we see that during the title sequence, the continuous opening and closing of doors from the perspective, like right in the middle. So the doors, the, the sliding of the door is coming either at you or it's coming away from you, but you're like sitting right in front of it. It's, it's this great visual reinforcement that we are watching two lives play out simultaneously and showing connection. It's also a great way to show division, to show a change in time, you know, because we talked about uh, the fact that this is partially time travel in some ways. And so things I picked up were, uh, were, were using those visual cues to indicate a change in time, maybe not always, but there were a couple of particular moments with that. And I just, I love the fact that a director can use visual cues like that to reinforce some of the themes that he's trying to, to make in the movie. It tells me that he cares for every aspect of the film, not just its characters, not just the overall story, but also the visuals that really reinforce that. 
Wow. See, and that's amazing because that's stuff that I don't necessarily pick up on, but I, I can definitely see what you're saying um, and how that works. I think I notice it, but I don't notice it in the context of, of you're seeing it and understanding it, like what the purpose of it is, where I'm just feeling it and I'm just reacting to it. Does that make sense? Well, if you're feeling it, then it's appropriate for our podcast. So you're, you're all good in my book. I mean, I'm Heck fine yeah. with being the, the, the empirical design guy and you can just be the feeler for, <laughs> although I got some feels too. We could talk I, about that later. Yeah. Well, we're going to, we're going to get there. Um, <laughs> so let's, but let's dive in here to the plot because this is a complicated film and I don't know if we've mentioned spoiler alert yet. I don't think we have, but this is a spoiler podcast. We're going to talk about this film and we're going to, you're going to just spoil the heck out of it. So if you haven't seen it, this is not a movie you want to be spoiled on. You want to experience this the first time for yourself. Go in, try and figure it out. Lots of twists and turns and surprises are coming your way. Uh, it takes multiple viewings to understand fully. And I don't even know if I fully get it. I've seen it like four times and I've read a full, you know, thousands of words on the explanation of how the timeline works. And I still am learning and picking things up, but the two big elements at play here are a, a, a use of time that is being shifted. And then also a gender swap story uh, between Mitsuha and Taki who take each other's place at various times. And so, like I said, I think for me, the stuff with the timeline is just so intriguing because the movie doesn't play out in that traditional sense where we're going forward in time. We're, we're jumping around and doing these snapshots. And what we don't know until later in the film is that Taki and Mitsuha are not in the same, it's not even, the, not the same time zone. They're not in the same year, right? So they are separated through time. Uh, and, and, and they don't understand that. They don't know that. And so when you see them doing things, there's, there's a, a couple things that stuck out in this last viewing. I remember texting you and telling you, I was like, Oh my gosh, this line, this one throwaway line that is just, you know, just a, in the middle of a conversation. And somebody says something about how, you know, this will be, be a decade from now, this will be remembered or this will be better. Mm -hmm. And it's a hint that, Hey, guess what? These characters are not actually they're not in the same time frame. Mm -hmm. And I found it just super compelling throughout this whole movie. I, I was admittedly confused the first time I watched it. I'm not going to lie, but I was confused in a way that made me intrigued and it didn't take away from my enjoyment of the movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I watched this again for the second time. And honestly, man, I'd forgotten about the three year jump. I, so, so getting that reveal again was, even more of a of a nice ha ha moment for me, but it reminded me that I didn't the jump and the twist or the reveal wasn't what made the movie great for me. It was all these other things about the plot, and I think that's a that's a um, that's a strength of of Shinkai that he's able to tell you a story in sequence, out of sequence revealing stuff later on, but keeping you intrigued because of the way these characters are introduced, the dialogue that he gives them and how they re relay, how they react to their friends, how they relate to their family. We get in the first 20 minutes of the movie, 
such an abundance of character development of both uh, Taki and Mitsuwa. I want to keep, I want to make sure I'm pronouncing it. Is it Mitsu, Mitsuwa? Okay. Mitsuha. Yeah. Mitsu, something, Mitsuha. something like that. I, okay. Yeah. There's no, it's, yeah. it's a Suha, not a Shu. So okay. it's not an SH, it's a SU. Mitsuha. Anyway, but, but her and Taki, we get this almost this instant roundedness over the course of the first 20 minutes that makes them incredibly appealing. I, I thought it was hilarious when we start getting hints of body swapping when <laughs> Taki in her body is just constantly like feeling her boobs and the sister's like, what are you doing? You're, you're weird. What a weirdo. And then breakfast and then shutting the door. So there's just so many different things, the way in which we get their relationships with their friends, particularly uh, Mitsuha's friends and how they react to her. And then Taki's friends and how he, re- they react to him. We, we get hints of, Hey, we're not getting the whole story. So there's that intrigue. But those payoffs become plus ones at this point because the 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 story so far is just really really good. Yeah, I, that scene you're talking about when they and they and we start with that right. Like so, mm-hmm. we don't even the first time we see the jump is Taki in her body in the bedroom and kind of like, why do I have boobs? And I think I can understand that in some ways some people could find that to be cringeworthy at first but when once you've seen the whole film in context you, you can't think that it's not it's not played for you know there's other films that do gender swapping where i think they would play that joke in a sexual manner but that's not how it's played here it's played here very realistic and what i would say is if i'm a teenage boy and i woke up in a girl's body the first thing i would notice and wonder about are the two things in, on my chest in front of me, right? Like that's the thing you're going to notice. And I love that it happens on the, it happens in the reverse too. So it's not even just one way. Right. Cause when Mitsuha is in Taki's body, she's like, uh, what do I do yeah. here? Yeah. And that's the thing is we need that, that moment to immediately give us a hint that something has happened because in any other case, it would be weird for a girl to be doing what she's doing in that opening scene, right? And I mean, let's be honest. I mean, that's just, I mean, you're going, what's happening here? But you're you're left immediately going, okay, something's different. But here's what I think is really interesting. I didn't pick this up until I actually watched it this time and then got some help from the internet. That opening scene where she wakes up and Taki's in her body and he's like, what's going on? And he's looking at, her body and like trying to figure out what the heck's going on. Then we get that, that, um, that door opening that, you know, that little quick transition. And all of a sudden she's walking out to the kitchen about to have breakfast. Well, until this viewing and again, help from the internet, I thought it was just linear. Okay. So maybe she's or he or whoever, what's happening. It's just a continuation. No, we've jumped a day later or we've jumped a day earlier. Or no, it's a day later yep. because then we start getting dialogue about, Hey, you were acting weird yesterday. Yep. And I thought that maybe the scene before was just sort of kind of residual from that day before. I didn't realize that it was just a cut. And then we actually went 24 hours later to the next day. And it's, I mean, it's delicious to just embrace that and go, Oh my gosh, I can't believe I missed that. And at the same time, that makes so much more sense because it gets you into an interesting place of going, okay, 
I've got to start seeing these time swaps and I've got to see where does, where does Shinkai cut into a forward and backwards type thing. Um, and so it was really interesting to me to see that. Yeah. And he does it a lot. And it actually happens with doors like that quite a few times in the film mm-hmm. where it's, it's almost like the concept of the sliding doors. Yes. Um, I was thinking about that too. Switching the time frame up a little bit. And, mm-hmm. and there's just so much of that dialogue that, that this story is pieced out and I'll say, well, I'll get to that later uh, point that I'm going to make, but it's, it's not something you will get on the first time around. I just, I don't, I don't think you could watch it because you're so your, your mind is drawn to the big things, right? The big ideas and you're, you're, you're conditioned in so many ways as a moviegoer to think about, okay, the big idea here is that there's this guy in this girl's body, but we don't, we're not thinking about the timeline. You know, we're, we're expecting it to be linear. Same concept as, is what happened to us when we saw Dunkirk and didn't have any idea what we were in for. We were expecting a linear story. And so it takes time for your mind to figure out and, and accept it <laughs> and go, Oh, okay. Now I'm in there. So when you watch this a second time, viewers, listener, wait, what are you listeners? People listening. Yes. If you have not seen this more than once, please watch it again because I think you will find it even more rich and you will start picking up on things like Patrick and I are talking about with these little hints of dialogue that really give things away throughout the movie that you just can't catch all of them the first time around. And I love – so when we're talking about the gender swapping, right, and how it sets the stage, it also sets the stage for it emotionally, I think, because their very first swap – invades that private bedroom space, Mm. which is super emotional and and it's intimate is the word I would use. Yeah. And then it progresses into one of my favorite sections of the movie, which is where they finally start to understand what's happening and they start leaving each other's text messages about what they can and can't do with each other's bodies. And I just imagine all of the goofy gender swap movies, not gender swap, but all the like body swap type movies mm-hmm. that we've seen and how silly it's handled. And it just felt so charming. And I don't know. I don't know what the word is, but it's, it felt, it felt so genuine to me and sincere. Innocent. That's innocent. the word. It felt innocent and sincere. Yes. Okay. Um, in the way that they were talking to each other throughout these text messages. There's one point where Mitsuha is doing Taki's job and she's complaining to him saying, you have, you work too much. You have too many shifts. And he says, well, you keep spending all my money. So Mm -hmm. I have to work so many shifts, you know? And he says, stop eating all these sweets or stop spending all my money on all these sweets. And she's like, well, you're reaping the benefits. They're going in your body. It's just, (laughs) I mean, it's, oh, I just, I adore it so much. There's a lot to be said about the, and I say this in the positive way, the juvenile nature of these, of these guys, because I feel like we're looking at a couple of like tweeners at this point, 14, 15 years old. So the things that they say feel very genuine in that, you know, their, their, their teenage privacy is being invaded by one another. And even setting up these rules, they still get frustrated with one another. And these are things that I think we would say as teenagers, if we were <laughs> going through these, these gender swaps, like stop doing that. I'm not, I'm not a vegetarian. Stop putting that junk in my, you know, in my body. I want, give me a donut or that kind of thing. But I think at the same time, 
we have what you were saying, this real sincerity and almost this schoolyard playfulness of a, of a, of the beginnings of a romance here. And I think that's where the, that's where I think the romance aspect of this, the love story becomes less of a trope and more of a, it goes along with that genuineness of the, of, of that particular montage is we get not only laughing and really humorous moments through that dialogue, but we get a sense of them beginning to know each other and, know, and knowing each other intimately because of this unique situation of their ability to swap bodies and live each other's lives. Uh, the fact that uh, Mitsuha sets Taki up on a date, I think is just fantastic. And seeing him just realize that, and that you, you mentioned earlier about the, the facial expressions in anime. This is a classic expression that I remember him making of like, ah, you know, oh my gosh, I have this date with this beautiful woman. What am I supposed to do? But it leads to such a great innocent scene with him and her. And it progresses the story of Taki and, and Mitsuha at, by the end of it. So everything, even, even what they're doing with each other brings them closer together in a way that's maybe not intentional that I think makes it more organic because it's not like they're trying to set each other up on dates or try to progress their romance. It's just happening because they know each other. Exactly. That's, that's exactly the point. It's not, they're not trying to have a romance. Right. This is not about two people that are wanting to fall in love. This is about two people that experience this unique, wild, unexplainable situation and thing. And they just, they're just experiencing it. They're just walking through it. They're dealing with it. Like they can't change it. So if I'm going to wake up like you, I'm going to deal with that. Right. And they, it's through, it's, it's, it's such like a real relationship should progress because it's almost the old, you know, cliche, like they're friends first and then they become lovers. Right. But they, mm-hmm. they have, that's why they fall in love is because they know each other intimately in this way that's not based on feelings and emotional, like romantic draw. Right. Beginning. They don't even know what each other looks. Well, I guess they know what what each other looks like. I was going to say like, but they don't, (laughs) they don't know that each other's like three years apart. Right. There's so much that they have no idea about. Mm -hmm. Um, and yet this bond just quietly is building, 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 building. Um, I wanted to actually talk about that. So the, we wrote this down in the notes and I love, I love what you said. You said, let's talk string theory. So <laughs> this Literally. learning concept throughout the film is that this, this string is connecting Taki and Mitsuha. Um, Mitsuha's, it's Mitsuha's ribbon and her, her grandmother sort of explains the mythology behind all of this and, it, and it, there's a scene where she's talking about how women in the family have this ability with, you know, bind winding and binding ribbons and, um, traveling across time and, and other such stuff. Like she, she makes it seem like this is something that she's done before the grandma does. Did you pick up on that by the way? I did not. It took again, help help from the web to get me to understand, Oh, this is actually a family thing. This is not uncommon. It's so subtle. That's, that's what I mean about the multiple watches. Yeah. It's, I didn't either until I read that article. Um, and then when I watched it this most recent time, I was like, Oh my gosh, it's right there. But this string theory 
I, I guess let me ask you what you what you thought about it from your viewings of it, if you can, before you read any commentary. It was very symbolic. I think that's kind of what um, I I thought that using Japanese history, I didn't know if that was real or if that was something made up by Shinkai, the whole backstory about ancestors and all the different stuff that went along with the the uh, the way in which a string can be broken, it can be tied, it can be torn, it can be all these different things, and then it can be brought together again. I thought the, that whole sequence of what her grandmother was talking about was very uh, romantic, and I mean romantic not in a lovey way, but in a you know a poetic type way. I thought that was a really fantastic way to describe that. And from a filmmaking standpoint, I think it was. It felt like it was intentional. Obviously, it wasn't. Uh, th- these were not throwaway lines, but I didn't think any more of it until the moment when we get her meeting him on the train, and he doesn't know her because this is like three years prior. Yeah, and then yes. she's walking away, and the string flies towards him. That's when the connection was made for me hearkening back to what her grandmother said uh, of saying, Oh, that's, that's the symbol there. But it, even bef- you know, overall, before I got more information about it, it still felt very symbolic. It didn't feel tangible necessarily. It didn't have as much weight until I got more information about it. Well, this, this string and this idea of this string is something that floored me from the very beginning, the very first time I watched this movie, it immediately represented this idea that they were bound together. And I got some of that from the film and then diving deeper into the Japanese history of this, it just kind of confirmed it for me. There's a specific, there's two different times and they're very close by in scenes where Taki is talking about this. It's while he is searching for Mitsuha and he's learning that the unfortunate, she, she's actually dead in this timeline, which is pretty traumatic and morbid when you think about it, mm-hmm. because he goes, he goes looking for her and he doesn't know, you know, he's like, he makes a comment at one point. He says, I, I don't, I'm, we stopped swapping. Like, I don't understand what happened. Just all of a sudden we stopped swapping and you, as a viewer, you're making that connection that, yeah, because the meteor hit and she's gone, um, in this, in this timeline. And so he's talking about this and he says someone who he, he, he looks down on his hand and he's wearing the, the ribbon, right? And he doesn't know why. He just knows that he says it, it has brought him good luck. So he wore it for good luck. He can't remember why he's got it though. He says someone who makes these, they once told me something. The cords, they represent the flow of time. They twist and tangle, unravel and connect, and that's what time is. And then later, he says, they assemble and take shape. They twist and tangle, unravel now and then, break and reconnect. That's what union is. Hmm. Time is. And it's so moving to me uh, because it's it feels very true. Like it, you can, you can absolutely visualize time in your own life 
in this way, I think. Of it, of it twisting and turning and unraveling and connecting and all of the different things that are going on within your life. And so when I, when I looked into this a little more, I came to find that like this actually is a Japanese, um, myth of some sort or tradition, I guess. I don't know, not a tradition. I'd say it's more like a myth, a story. Um, it's called the red string of fate. And for the Japanese, that culture is just, it's much more of a, a feeling and, intuiting kind of culture than Americans are in general. And for them, human relations are predestined by a red string that the gods tie to the pinky fingers of those who find each other in life. Legend has it that the two people connected by this thread will have an important story, regardless of the time, place, or circumstances, and often will be lovers. The red string might get tangled or contracted or stretched, as surely often will happen, but it can never break. And this myth is kind of like the Japanese version of our soulmate or a destined flame or lover. And I, I can't help, but just swoon at the idea of this, (laughs) you know, like I want to believe that this is true. You know what I mean? Like I, I like thinking that way personally. Yeah. There's a, a deeper meaning behind what Shinkai does. And it goes beyond just the visuals. It, I, I, I adored those lines. They twist, tangle, unravel and connect. And that's what time is. I guess I just, I, I kind of just sat on those words this time around because I knew that they were important. And when you combine them with that last, that, that particular scene, when you combine them with that particular scene, on the subway adding that much weight to it. What you notice later on is on subsequent videos, you see that string wrapped around his wrist. And I didn't notice that the first time, obviously, like I didn't notice a ton of stuff. I remembered it later in my second viewing. And so subsequent viewings, I'm going to be watching when he puts the the string around his wrist. But I think that it ties, no pun intended, uh, into the idea of, of this time travel, of these being kind of out of sync with one another and then finding one another at that moment. Um, there's that one scene when they're at, what is it called? Magic hour. That's one of the terms for it. And I love that scene. I love that scene because it's the once, it's the one moment when, when Taki puts, he takes he takes the the string off and gives it back to her, and it makes me wonder if I doubt this is true. But on the subway, if it was magic hour on the subway, like if it was getting close to dusk, I don't think it was. But that's just. But and I think it's great that this one moment where he actually gives the string back to her is at that moment when they can actually connect. Like up until that moment, they've been visually disconnected. You know, they're running past each other and they don't see each other and. um it's where I think division and unison sort of collide at this moment. And if I go back to what Shinkai talked about earlier or with his ways of dividing the space, that's a moment where he uses that division and, and, and uses it to collide and create unison. That's, he's playing with this idea of division and unity all in the same space. And he's using time to sort of bleed it all together. I can't really get my head around it. Uh, it feels like something I should write down and maybe do a 20 page essay on, but 
I think there's something really beautiful about how he uses time and division and unity to help reinforce what that speech is trying to say, where you have, where this whole movie really plays out that there is twists and tangles and there's an unraveling when, you know, Taki finds out that she's dead and then there's a connection when he, and when, when they both get to connect it at, at dusk or not dusk, but at twilight and there's unison there. And I just, I love that. I love that there's that moment when they are able to actually connect in that space that they've been missing throughout the whole movie. And the, and the, and the, 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 the string does that. I think the string is the central figure in that. Yeah, it's, it, it absolutely is. I mean, it is, it is the thing that binds them together. Uh, and it's, it's wonderful um, because when you look at it literal, linearly, that linearly, say, linearly, linearly, yeah, that's, that's how this kind of takes place, right? Because she passes them on the train first mm-hmm. and that's what ultimately ends up being you know, like the connection, the fate right. aspect of it. And then of course we get to see, we, get, we also have that great scene toward the early, the early part of the movie. I love again, just like little bits where she screams. She's like, I just want to wake up and be a handsome Tokyo boy, you know, <laughs> a handsome boy in Tokyo. And then of course, like almost right away, boom, he wakes up as her. Uh, mm-hmm. And then we notice, Oh, she gets to wake up as a handsome Tokyo boy. So the other big emotional kind of crux of this movie comes from its title of your name. And so let's talk a minute about that. The power of a name. Um, This is, this is not something that is unfamiliar. Uh, I immediately think back to uh, a book series that I really enjoy. A fantasy book series called the King killer Chronicles by Patrick Rothfuss. Um, The first book is called the name of the wind. And in this series, names have an incredible amount of power and value to them, magical uh, in nature, uh, spiritual in nature. And I think that this film does a little bit of that as well. Did you think so? Oh, yeah. If you connected to the string theory, the most, this is where I connected to the, the power of, of the name and the way in which names are used to not only create connection, but also to create, to craft identity uh, from the very beginning. I think it's ironic that I'm the guy who can't remember names. And so I really had to practice before tonight's episode to remember it's Taki and Mitsuha, Taki and Mitsuha. Remember those two. I don't really care about the rest of these guys. I'm just going to remember those two because I know in an hour, I'm probably going to forget their names. So I must not have the red string, but I, I look at this and the first thing that comes to mind is this idea of being remembered. And it harkens back to our episode on Coco where the importance of that and not only being remembered, but being remembered well, there's a hint of that here. I don't think it's necessarily as heavy handed as Coco, or at least as deliberate as Coco, but there's also this idea of knowing someone intimately. And we hinted at that early to know a name and to know some, not just know someone's name, you, you know them by their identity. I mean, we think about nicknames, Uh, my nickname I go by patch and people know who I am based on that nickname. When people hear me called Patrick, like you, they're like, who is that guy? But you know me in, in both instances, but there's a personality that's connected to that. Um, nicknames give 
a sense of identity to a person. We talk about the great one when it comes to hockey. We know exactly who that is. If you're a sports fan, uh, air Jordan, you know, we know who that is. We know these sports figures. We know the, um, they have connection with their personality. They, they invoke, they invoke, uh, personality traits from what they're called. There's a reason why they're called those things. And so when we look at these two guys, these two characters, and they, they're desperately trying to remember each other's names. It's not that they're trying to remember semantics or how to spell something. They're trying to remember who this person was because by the end of the film, they've known each other intimately. They've swapped, they swapped bodies a number of times and they know those intimate moments, those intimate connections with each other. And they're trying so hard to remember that. And the best way that they know how, the one way that they know how to do that is to remember your name. And it, gosh, it broke me when I'm hearing her say, his name, your name is Taki. Your name is Taki. It's Taki. And then she goes, your, your name is, and, and you see it just fading. It's kind of like when you are waking up from a dream yep. and you're trying to remember it. And exactly. I know that's exactly what Shinkai is doing here yep. is it's this fading and going back to that idea of magic hour is the moment of the dream that you remember the most vividly. And then the moments after that, when you're waking up, it's like, wait, who was that? Oh. And I could, I could get that. I could, I could understand that and how desperately you want to remember because you know, it's important. Uh, it just, it breaks me, it breaks me every time I see that. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I'm with you. It's, it is incredibly moving and, um, something I like, I love that you brought that up. The idea of, or the, comparison of a dream because that's what it feels like it does it's like grasping at something that you don't want to lose you know i don't i don't have you here but i have this memory and i don't want to forget this memory i don't want to i don't want to lose this because once it's gone it's gone forever um and knowing that yet it's so twisty because I love what they do here. He, when they meet in that magic hour, which everything about that whole scene is just, I mean, I am wrecked at that time. I am right there with them and I am feeling every emotion so strongly. And he, he comes up with this idea and he doesn't say, you know, uh, let's, let's try and connect and stay together somehow. He says, you know, write down your name. And, and, and give it to me so that I won't forget it. And like, it just, it's that, how, how simple is that? Right? Like all I want from you is to remember your name. Like that's, that's his only wish. That's his only desire. And I think about how completely innocent and unique that is. I think about like relationships I've been in, all the things that I need or want or demand out of those relationships. But yet, all Taki wants is just to remember Mitsuha's name. Um, and that's so powerful to me. And the fact that when it comes to it, when you come to come to find out that that's not even what he wrote. And so we're, I don't know. I was, I was shocked. So when, when she drops the note and she's forgotten his name and she picks it up to remember it and she reads it and she just says, I love you. I just, Oh, Man, the, the romance hits at that point for me, right? The love story hits at that point. And the, it cuts to like the narration. It says, I was planning to tell you that no matter where you are in the world, I'll find you no matter what. Your name is Mitsuha. It'll be okay. I'll remember. And he's like willing himself to remember. And she's doing the same thing because when she goes searching for him, 
She says it, she says it too. She says, there's one thing I'm certain of. If we see each other, we'll definitely know right away that you were the one who was in me and I was the one who was in you. And if that is not the definition of like an actual loving soulmate connected relationship, then I don't, I don't know what is. Yeah. I, I, I don't think I could even imagine, or I don't even know if I've ever seen a depiction of that intimacy depicted in such a not grammatical way in a narratively driven way that we have what, what could have been a, a great science fiction story about body swapping turned into an intimate soul connecting romance that felt natural among the unnatural. (laughs) And those two sets of lines are so fantastic because they come from, they come from, obviously they come from each other, but it's, it's almost as if we understand that the names themselves are sort of anchors to what is said afterwards. I love that he says, I was planning to tell you that no matter where you are in the world, I'll find you no matter what. Your name is Mitsuha. That's the anchor. That's going to be where I hang on to and where I always will start from. That's the base. That's the that's the starting point for my journey. And it will always be the place because I'll always know that. I'll always carry that with me. And and then when she responds later with that, there's one thing I'm certain of. If we see each other, we'll definitely know right away because of the fact that they were connected in that way. I, I just, I don't know that there's ever been, at least in my history of watching movies, a, an explanation or an expression of that, that feels so genuine. And to see it from a cartoon, I think is just even more mind blowing. That's yeah. That's, and that's where I'm with you right there. Like I, I love this kind of film in general. I love romantic movies that explore real human emotions and connection like this, but I've never seen it done quite like this before. And to wrap it all up because they ultimately the name doesn't matter. It's, it's that connection that was formed between them. The, I love you matters more than remembering the name. They don't remember each other's names. And the last lines of the entire movie are them really kind of just recognizing each other, starting to notice that there's something here and then asking each other simultaneously, can I ask you your name? And I just, oh man, it just, oh, it crushes me every time. Like not crushes me in a bad way. Cause obviously it's a happy ending, but I mean, it just, it's, it's such an emotional roller coaster up and down. And when you blend that kind of storytelling with the fantastical little bit of magic and sci-fi time travel, concept it's so different than anything i'd ever seen in my entire life Mm -hmm. this is what go go ahead ahead. i was just gonna say this is one of those things that i appreciate about creators who use one thing to do something else and i think that's why we like christopher nolan so much is that he's telling a story but he's using an interesting either methodology in the way he tells a narrative he's using interesting characters he's using science fiction, science fact. He's using all these different elements to say, I want to tell this story, but I want to tell it in a way that isn't necessarily conventional. Because if we look at, just going back real quick to the to the linear, nonlinear storytelling, 
would this movie have been as compelling if we hadn't had that? Uh, maybe. I mean, I don't think, but I don't think we get the genuineness that we get from the characters. I don't think we get the sincerity. And I, I definitely don't think it would have held my interest personally without that particular element. And that doesn't make it a, a bad movie because I don't think it needed it. I think it enhanced it quite a bit. And when, when those peculiar elements become the plus ones as opposed to the focal point, you're doing something right as a creator because the story is kind of, it's discoverable, you know, it, it's a discoverable story that on multiple viewings, you discover more about it. And that's what makes it probably important, not important, but it makes it valuable as a viewer. And that's what made it valuable to me to watch it again and to continue to watch it multiple times is my enjoyment factor is increased because of all those little nuances, but the story doesn't change. I still know what's going to happen. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm connected to other parts of it that lead to that bigger overall narrative. You're connected to these characters with a red string, Patrick. Okay. I'll take that. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, before we wrap up, let's talk a little bit about the technicals of this one, because it is, it is stunning and you don't, you don't unseat Miyazaki without both an amazing story and being incredible animation. And that's, that's what this is. That's why it's a masterpiece. And I'm going to say it. I don't care what Don, our buddy has to say about it. Um, yes, Shinkai is still making movies and he may make better movies, but this will still be a masterpiece. So get off me. That being said, why? Because the animation is amazing. The music is amazing. Patrick, I'm even going to tell you, I'm assuming that you watched the subtitled version of this. I did both. The first time I watched the subtitles, because that's what was available to us. And this time I watched the English dub with, uh, with not only English dialogue, but English uh, music from, uh, from, from the actual like soundtrack itself. And uh, I actually wanted to ask you uh, if you watched both and if you mm-hmm. had a different reaction or did one react, did, did one version change your vantage point? I mean, did you respond differently between one or the other if you saw both? So I've seen both twice. I've, I've seen the, the Japanese version twice first, number, times number one and two. And I really enjoy, I've, I enjoy it. I don't, I don't mind subtitles when it comes to anime. It, I, much less so than I do. Like I don't really care for subtitles that much when I'm watching a traditional movie live action. But for some reason in anime, I've just become accustomed to it by watching the TV shows and such so much. And, I was fine. I enjoyed the heck out of it. I, I like the expressiveness of the voices and the way that they come across. And I was emotionally moved. I cried my eyes out. Um, my kids and I had a great time with that. And I really liked the music. Um, it stuck out big time, uh, when I first watched it. I was nervous, but I thought I need to watch it in English just to see because, you know, if I'm going to recommend this to people. I'm going to, I know there are people out there that just don't do subtitles. And so it's good that there is this English version and was it going to be something that we could recommend? And I'm happy to say that after watching the English version twice, I think it's great. I think it is actually really well done. The things that I found that were interesting is are that you can actually pick out the story a little bit easier, I feel like, when you're watching the English version because the words that they're using, there's something about hearing them say it and it connecting in your ears versus reading it that makes it easier to understand, at least for me. 
and I felt like I got more of the story. I picked up on more of those details by hearing them say it. And that's probably because if my eyes dip away for a second because I, I glance down to move the blanket, I don't miss a sentence on the screen. I still hear that sentence. So I'm guessing right. that that's part of why. But yeah, I, I actually wholeheartedly, like two thumbs up to the English version of this. I'm going to still watch the subtitle version sometimes. And I think I'll probably watch the English version sometimes. I like them both. I like the music in them both. I, I really think they're both great. Yeah. I'm, I'm torn on the English version because like you, I, I think that one, you got to have an incredible voice cast. And I think that's where Miyazaki shines and his English dubs, particularly with the wind rises. There is a fantastic voice cast, including John Krasinski. I think that was a surprise to me, but when you have characters who need to emote quite a bit through this dialogue, because it's a very dialogue heavy movie, you are going to live and die by the way your, your voice cast works. And I think it did a fantastic job. Now I will say that the, the combination of a, of a vocal track in English and a still Japanese visual uh, cues from like cell phones and you know the animation itself like reading the the animate the the for instance like the memos and stuff were still in Japanese and I'm trying to read some of this stuff they weren't actually retranslated obviously because you don't do that in animation you don't you don't dub animation visuals that was kind of disjointed for me I felt like I was a little disconnected there um, and only because it didn't feel like it flowed as well but like like you, when you can catch emphasis and when you can catch particular ways in which a character says something, uh, there is a or even even like the small like ha ah, you know the 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 emoting of the of just nonverbal or non worded cues that definitely en- enhances it for me, particularly someone who doesn't speak Japanese. Um, I'm still kind of torn. I don't know if I liked one versus the other. They're, they're both great. So I'm kind of, you know, it's not like I'm down on one and up on the other. They're both really fantastic, but I feel like I got more, I'm kind of the opposite of you. I feel like I got more detail from the, the subtitled version because it was more consistent with, uh, with the overall, uh, visuals and everything else. But watching the English one, I was just as satisfied. Well, good. I'm glad that we can both recommend either version because that just makes it more accessible for more people, which is Mm -hmm. what I want from this film. I want people to see it. Um, other technicals animation. We've, we've kind of talked some about that. It's just Mm -hmm. supremely stunning to me. Did anything really stick out to you? I'll say, I'll go first and say that the thing that stuck out to me the most probably was just again, those sky visuals of the comet, and it breaking apart and just the colors that are used there when they, when Taki is going through time and space within the shrine and he's kind of mm-hmm. in the underworld, that whole magical sequence mm-hmm. um, after she has died and he's seeing the past, that whole sequence is just stunning to me. Just the way in which Shinkai manages to do animation is phenomenal i mean it is it is truly the best thing i have ever seen animated wise i can say that i'm not ashamed of that and um it's a personal preference you know some people provide prefer the muted you know more muted colors or pastel or kind of water watercolor looks to some of the anime that that um 
Miyazaki does, and that's totally fine. But for me, this is this is mind blowing stuff here at mm-hmm. work. What did anything stick out at you, to you the most? Or well, I want to I want to harken back to Keddy, uh, the documentary we talked about a couple of weeks ago, and the the thing that stood out to me, cats. Well, besides cats, was the <laughs> the drone shots of of the city? Uh, I think I mentioned yes. that. I like the drone shots in your name too. And <laughs> sorry, I'm derailing they were you. They were, they carry were, on. They were tethered by a red string. <clears throat> but I think there were some great visuals from the realistic standpoint, and and one in particular was the introduction of Taki and the world of Tokyo that that we got to see as the the camera pans up over the city and how bright and alive it is. There were several moments where we see the big subway system, all these subway cars passing each other. And I I just loved the I I loved the urban segments, the urban visuals. And that's the other thing I love I I liked about this quite a bit is this contrast of rural versus urban between him and her. And I definitely gravitated towards the concrete jungle and how you could feel that he was a city guy, that he lived in the city. He embraced everything about it, the coffee shops and or the cafe and everything else. And that was something that was definitely played up in this. But that particular shot was one that, that I gravitated towards. And one of the reasons why, beyond just the visuals that were really stunning, were the the songs by the band Rad Wimp. Is it Rad Wimp? I'm going to go ahead and call him Rad Wimp. I don't know. I mean, it, it looks like Rad Wimps to me. So we'll, we'll I go hope ahead it's Rad Wimps because it's a really, really cool name if it's Rad Wimps. But we, we got the, we got the chance to hear these original songs, at least the ones that were vocal in English, which I think, um, added to my enjoyment because again, just like with dialogue, we get emotion. And so when we understand what the words are, they attach themselves to uh, to the music, and and then we get that emotional response to it. And and Rad Wimp does that. There's a there's I don't know, if, I can't remember if it was a vocal or if it was an instrumental track, but there was music that was playing during that particular scene, and it really enhanced it for me. And this band, I mean, oh my goodness, the amount of variety and the amount of emotional range that we get and style throughout this whole soundtrack i'm i'm assuming that they wrote everything on the on the uh on the soundtrack but it's it's a phenomenal uh album as far as i know they did and and i i agree like it's i'm not normally a fan of j-pop like it's not something that i listen to it's not something that i find myself you know bobbing my head to i'm kind of like eh, okay moving on but there is just something that is about both the songs and the score mm-hmm. to this that are emotionally resonating and moving in a, in a, in a Hans Zimmer like kind of way, or, you know, like a John in the best type of scores, the best scores that just sweep you up and they carry you through the emotions of the film along with the story mm-hmm. at every single turn. And that's what this does. I mean, it's masterful. Mm-hmm. There's a, a number of songs that I gravitated towards. I was listening to the, the Japanese soundtrack while I was cooking dinner. And my wife was like, what are we listening to? And I said, it's a little soundtrack to a movie called your name. And I know you'll never watch it. So just let me have this for a little bit. But one song in particular stood out to me. And 
it was done in two parts and it's simply called date and date two. And it's a simple piano, but the way it's used and where it's used, I, I don't, I don't know how, I don't really know how to describe how I feel when I hear it. But earlier tonight when I was getting ready, I started listening to it and I was like, that sounds really familiar, at least in its tones to something else. And then I queued up a little song by a guy named uh, Wiz Khalifa. I don't know if you know him, but he wrote a song for Furious 7 called See You Again. Okay. And if... And I started listening to the beginning of of this of of date or date two in particular, and then I listened to the beginning of see you again and it's that really just simple piano it's not the same tune by any means, but it's the way the song starts that feels very like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna start crying because it's it's very simplistic, it's very innocent, and it caters right to the overall tone of the movie. And the way it's used both times are at pivotal moments of innocence and uneasiness and discomfort and like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? Uh, for the, the first time, it's used when when Taki goes out on his date. And I'm, I'm smiling the whole time because I'm seeing these interactions and I'm hearing this music and it's perfect. And then the second time it's used, I feel the exact same way. And I'm just like, that is a, just a wonderful track. And I just remember it, it made me feel the same way it, from, uh, from Khalifa's song. I was like, oh man, I feel this kind of emotional coming over me. And it does the same thing. So there's a, there's a kind of a weird connection that I have with those two. And I wanted to make sure it wasn't the same song or that it wasn't stealing from anything, but both of them, I think evoked a similar emotion to me. Yeah, man, I'm, I'm right there with you. I, I can listen to this at any time and it, reminds me of the feelings that I got when I had the La La Land soundtrack on repeat, just the way that it it penetrates my soul to use really flowery language. And I mean, I think there's a couple Hans Zimmer's tracks that do this. There's, there's the cornfields and interstellar do this to me. Um, there's time and inception that does this to me. And so many of these tracks date in particular and date two, even more so, I think for me, mainly because of the story point that's attached to date two are, are absolutely in that zone and, and they're in that area of, um, of amazingness for me. But the, I like the songs too, like so much, the J pop songs. I think it's crazy how good they are. There's this one point where, um, during Mitsuha's attempts to evacuate the town, there's this song called sparkle, that is playing and oh my goodness, man, you want to talk about like amping up your feelings in that moment and what she's trying to do. Like she's trying to save all of these people, but it's largely driven from her will to live because she loves Taki and she wants to like be with Taki again. And she obviously can't do that if she's murdered by a comet and it's just, it's phenomenal. And the language in the lyrics as well, I think is really neat. I don't know if you've ever, read through the lyrics of some of these songs, but it's worth doing because it fits perfectly. Um, the, the, the words that are being spoken fit the scenes in a way that I did not think was possible in translation because some of them don't rhyme. That's the primary thing when these are being translated. That's kind of 
hard to get used to it in a little in a little bit of ways for me because they're not the songs don't flow exactly the same but it never bothered me they were still just as emotionally uh moving but yeah i i love it and i even like i even think that he uses sound just really well from a sound editing perspective Mm -hmm. there's this one scene that is a wonderful moment of dead silence when the comet hits Almost the whole movie is backdropped by some sort of a score or, you know, sounds in the background, but just for a split second, there is nothingness for one second, two seconds, and then whoosh, you immediately pick up on the sound of the devastation of the comet as it rushes across the screen and tears apart the landscape. And it's just, oh, I mean, it, it, it pumps you up, you know, it gets you feeling the devastation and the, the destruction that is happening in such more of a way than you would if it didn't give you that pause. So right. I think it's fantastic. Everything about yeah. it. There's the, uh, the tension of that moment, I think is what really makes it stand out. The fact that we have that silence really amplifies that tension because we're now in that moment. We're not watching this thing happen. We're like down at ground zero, really about ready to watch this thing just devastate us. And, and I think that's what he wanted. He wanted us to feel that way. Well, it worked. It definitely worked. I felt a lot during this movie. <laughs> Good deal. And I will continue to, because I will continue to watch it. Mm-hmm. Me too. Me I too. love it. It will be a staple. So I think that's about it, man. Did you have anything else that you wanted to talk about before we wrap up? Or No, I'm I'm uh, I'm excited about checking out the other two films uh, here probably in the next, well, whenever I get a chance. we got a lot that we're covering the next two, two or three weeks. But I'm going to try to make some time to to digest his other two films uh, as I find them and um, and just kind of see how they not compare, but where they fit in terms of his overall storytelling themes. Cause you mentioned earlier that they're kind of similar. So I'm excited about getting into those and, and checking those out. Awesome. Well, you'll have to tell me what you think. We'll do. And then you can come into the awesome feeling film Facebook group and tell everybody else what you think too. Cause <laughs> that's where magic hour happens for us. That is feeling film Facebook group. So come on in you can find links to that on the show notes on our website. You can find it by just Googling or searching for feeling film discussion group, uh, within Facebook itself. There's plenty of room and we, we talk about movies every day, all day. Great group of people. My favorite part of the group is the discussion topics that are almost like a podcast in and of themselves because people really get deep and it's not just kind of superfluous. I, it, not to knock any other groups specifically, but I'm in other Facebook groups where it feels like every post is about a comic book movie, every single one. And our listeners have incredibly diverse palette of tastes when it comes to film. We've got anime movie lovers. We've got documentary lovers. We've got foreign film lovers. And we've got people who've got incredible history of classic film education. And we've got people who just prefer modern day blockbusters. So um, there's definitely somebody to talk to if you want to come join that. Uh, you can always talk to me as well online, anywhere you'd like at Aaron L. White, A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E. Primarily, you can find me tweeting all day on Twitter. Uh, and uh, yeah, I'd love to continue the conversation with anybody who's seen your name and was moved by it as much as I was. And if you want to find me, you can uh, check out uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm at Shoeless Patch, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H. I can usually be found on one of those three posting pictures of my son or my wife 
or just generally sending out memes of really funny stuff that I find appealing. Occasionally I'll drop into the Facebook group and drop a poll. Um, I wouldn't be called myself a troll, more of just kind of a, a, a light observer slash participant whenever I can get the chance to, cause life gets pretty busy. But I, uh, if you at me, I will definitely respond back to you. So I'd love to hear what you guys thought of, uh, of tonight's episode. Um, and also of your name or any other stuff that, that we've covered, you can find a lot of, well, not a lot. You can find everything we've done up till now at our website, feelingfilm.com. We've got our episodes, minisodes, got all of our, our, our guests, well, most of our guest posts, but also a lot of our writing from our feeling film contributors like Jeremy, who is now a proud papa for the fifth time. Congratulations. And as well as others from, from Don and Steve who contribute as well. So be sure to check that out when you get the chance. Great. Well, that is it for this mini-sode. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll be back with us in a few days as we talk about The Last Jedi. 